Welcome to the VBPH Sermon Podcast. This week, we're reposting sermons from the recent Bible conference in Tucson, Arizona. Each day this week, you'll enjoy sermons that were preached in the evening services, plus one morning seminar for our Saturday episode. Even our free subscribers will get a full week of ad-supported episodes. But if you'd like to support world evangelism with early released episodes and an ad-free listening experience, then use the links in the show notes to subscribe today. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's sermon. I have to say that this message is very, very much for this church. I, I couldn't preach this sermon as it is anywhere else in the world, actually, in Tucson. If you preach a conference, it's one and done. But it really has to do with this congregation. John 13, we'll go there in the Word of God. I want to say what tremendous preaching last night, Pastor Warner, uh, uh, and then today, the excellent, excellent ministry. I was watching Mike Webb preach, and I thought, you know, this building, you have this many people and Mike's ministry, and I thought, you know, you can't get a better venue for preaching the gospel, a tremendous ministry, Pastor Stephen Sermon. Uh, uh, anyway, excellent. All the preaching, Courtney, I, I really do appreciate it. John 13. October 24, 1948, Billy Graham is uh, beginning to really accelerate his ministry. He's still a a young man. I think he was around 30 years old at the time. He uh, is beginning to see breakthrough. The following year, he'll go to Los Angeles, and uh, from that point on, uh, his ministry will be in a rocket ship. But this is prior to that. He's ministering in Modesto, California. And he has three men working with him at the time, and they're doing this crusade in Modesto. One afternoon, they're at their hotel room, and Billy Graham is concerned. A book has been written by Sinclair Lewis, actually a few decades, but it's become very popular, and it's called Elmer Gantry. And you know this book. It is is basically a, a, a secular view of the tent ministries that were moving around in America at that time and exposing some of the hypocrisy, and it's a a shot, really, against gospel preachers, but it's getting a lot of fanfare so that every time somebody set up a crusade or a tent, uh, they were beginning to be looked at with a jaundiced eye. And so he asked these three men, he said, I want you to go back to your hotel room, and I want you to pray, and I want you to write down a list of what you think are the biggest temptations that come with traveling ministry. An hour later, these men came back, each with their list, uh, and they presented it, uh, and it turned out that all of them had said the exact same thing. uh, And so that day, they wrote down uh, an agreement among themselves, uh, and the agreement was, number one, had to do with money. And they made an agreement that they would resist a temptation to try to wring as much money as possible out of an audience by using strong emotional appeals. They said, we're going to raise money, but we're not going to use gimmicks. The second thing they said is they would never be alone with another woman other than their wife under any circumstance. How many know that's still good doctrine today? Number three uh, had to do with independence, that they would always work uh, in the confines of the church. It was very common for many of these evangelists to begin to believe that they didn't need the local church. They said, we're going to always work within the confines of the church. And number four, they said, was pride. uh, And they said they would never exaggerate their numbers because sometimes people like to throw out numbers because it sounds appealing. But there's something else. And the reason why I point out that little story is something else happened that day. 
that they didn't even realize it. History would look at that meeting and that letter that they wrote and call it the Modesto Manifesto or the Modesto Compact. And you can look it up and you'll find that it's still referenced. But it's the fifth thing that happened that day that I'm preaching on. Because that day, Billy Graham, at the age of 30, was with a man named George Beverly Shea. He was 24 years old. Cliff Barrows, he was also, I think, 27. Grady Wilson was 37 years old. And those four men sat down and they made an agreement. But the agreement that wasn't written was this, that we're going to remain together. 50 years later, these men were together. In fact, they stayed together until they died. That they began in ministry as young men and they stayed together until they died. You know, next year, we'll be celebrating 50 years that Pastor Warner and Mona came to Tucson to pioneer this church. Today, if you read at all, you will find that one of the things they always talk about Billy Graham is that Billy Graham and his team... Uh, they didn't drift. They didn't move apart. They didn't have falling outs. They didn't go off to, to, to seek uh, their own. Uh, and, and yet here we are in this uh, a little sliver of our fellowship, and we gather together here. Um, and and I, I, what I want to communicate tonight to this congregation as I sit here uh, and I, I preach here uh, this uh, evening. The church is 50 years old. I got saved when the church was five years old. Uh, but as I stand here and I look out on this crowd, uh, I look at men. Uh, I was thinking about the preaching list uh, and the men that are from Tucson that are preaching. And I thought I knew every one of these men as teenagers. And now we're grandfathers. Everyone on that list that's preaching that uh, was saved here in Tucson, I knew these men as single men. Um, everyone except Paul Stevens. Him and Renee got married when they were 12. But uh, other than that, uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying to you uh, is I don't think we unfully appreciate or understand that here we are 40 years down the road and we're still here. And if you would understand how rare that is, how rare that is, you and I are part of something uh, so powerful. You know what inspired this sermon? Back in March, I had the privilege of going and preaching for Jesus and Pat Salai in Mexico City powerful revival. He has a powerful church. It's a church planning center. They had a, a huge crowds that are there. But the thing I most enjoyed is that Jesus and I have known each other. We got saved within weeks of each other. We street preached together over and over again. He would drive downtown. I would take the bus downtown. We would preach. And then we'd get in his low rider and go eat somewhere. But I, and I just thought, I mean, you know, I said, how rare this is that you can know men that we knew each other as teenagers and we're still standing side by side 40 years later preaching the gospel. So I want to preach a sermon tonight, and I hope, I hope it communicates uh, this evening what's in uh, my spirit. And we're going to John 13. The sermon is called The Litter. And uh, John 13, verse 31. I'll let you figure out who's who up there. Yolanda said, why don't you use kittens? I said, no way. <laughs> John 13, the Lord Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Verse 31, it says, so when Jesus had gone, or, I'm sorry, I'm, let me start over. It says, when he, the he there is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. 
If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you may also love one another. Verse 35 says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Father, I thank you for what you're doing here. God, I understand that uh, this gathering is a miracle. God, I look back 43 years, these powerful ministries were all once young men serving God together. We thank you for what you've done in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. First of all, tonight, we are appointed for fellowship. So here we are, we're at the Last Supper you all know the story that Jesus is going to break bread and he is going to drink the cup. It is going to symbolize the cross where he would offer his body and he would pour out his blood. And we understand that and we understand the whole principle of communion. But I want to focus in on another dimension that was taking place in that dinner because the word communion has in it the same word where we get our word community that that day uh, at that table uh, it was not everybody being invited it was an exclusive meeting uh, there were 13 people uh, at that meeting by the time we get to this text there's only 12 um, and they are sharing communion they are in community uh, and the real meaning there is that they had something in common that in that little group they had something in common The scripture says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so tonight, I want you to get out of your mind these religious gatherings with phony intimacy and everybody calling each other brother and sister that don't know jack about one another. Uh, I want to tell you when they were in that dinner, they knew an awful lot about one another. And Jesus was saying something to men in context. Uh, They had labored together. They are coming to the conclusion. Hours later, he'll be crucified. A couple of days later, he'll be raised from the dead. Forty days after that, he's going to ascend. Uh, These were men that had spent three years with Jesus. Uh, There was context for the words uh, that he is going to speak to them. Um, And I want you to consider tonight, Jesus didn't just bring them to himself. Uh, He brought them together. That those men in that dinner were there, uh, if you would have asked them, they would have said, I'm there for Jesus. What are you doing? Well, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. uh, And uh, that is true, uh, beloved, but that's not the whole story. The reality is uh, that when John followed Jesus uh, and Peter followed Jesus or Andrew uh, or any of these disciples, the reality was uh, that he just didn't call them to himself. uh, He called them to one another. He called them into a relationship uh, together. In other words, beloved, the people that are in our lives are there by divine appointment. God brings you and I uh, into this place. They have diverse backgrounds. Uh, They have unique personalities. Uh, And as they related to Jesus, uh, they began to relate uh, to themselves. Uh, And uh, that is not just a concept. That's not abstract. I got saved in this church in April of 19. 
79. And when I got saved here, Pastor Warner became my pastor, uh, and I began to live for Jesus. Pastor Warner has been my pastor for 43 years. That's a wonderful thing. But you know what? Uh, Pastor Mitchell was Pastor Warner's pastor for 50 years. You know why? Because that's what our fellowship is all about. It's about long-term relationships. It's about the idea that God brings people into our lives. Uh, We didn't go around. I hope you're not shopping for a church tonight. I hope you're not shopping for a pastor. You know, we live in the day and age today when a quarterback goes to play college as a freshman. If he's not the starting quarterback, he moves on to somewhere else. You can get away with that in the NCAA, but you can't get away with that in the kingdom of God. God chooses our relationships. God puts us together. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to go to the door because I like that pastor. I'm going to go there because I might have a future. Oh, friend, uh, all I cared about uh, was being washed in the blood of Jesus, being forgiven, uh, beloved. And as I kept my eye on Jesus, uh, he brought me into this house. He brought me to this people, to that pastor. uh, And that's not just true for me. That's true for all of us tonight. It is a divine uh, appointment. It's not luck that, oh, I just happened to get saved here. Saying to you, and not just me, but many of us, we've been here now for over 40 years. Uh, Does that make us outliers? I want to tell you tonight, that's the will of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. God has now set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And that was foundational to you and I getting saved. It was rooted in this belief that the people in my life are the will of God. And there's something very, very powerful. And I remember going way back when I was still a teenager and I began to understand the vision. One of the things that so appealed to me was thinking about Pastor Warner that at one point he was a young man in the Prescott church. With other young men, they functioned, they related together. I'll never forget in 1980, the first time I went to a Prescott conference, um, and uh, we came into Prescott. You know, we left at, you know, we were so excited. We left at four in the morning to go to Prescott, uh, and we arrived there probably about eight or nine. Uh, we're driving up Gurley, uh, and there is uh, that little school, Washington, uh, right on the side of the road. And somebody said to me, you know that Pastor Warner used to play basketball one-on-one with some of the guys from the church right there. And I remember, I hear all these, I still remember that. And I thought, well, how cool it is that a group of young men that grew up together, now they're powerful men of God. And I thought, oh, God, could you ever do that with us? Small young men that God got involved in. I was saved in a litter. I want to tell you, I was saved in a litter. Jean Lavelli was saved just a few months after I was. And I look at Jean today and the powerful, powerful ministry. I was thinking about Pastor Stephen's word, and I thought that, that uh, part of that are the many thousands of teenagers that have been touched by him through the years. Alvin Smith, we were saved in the same time. We were young men together. Marty Carnegie, James Wilkins, Ray, Herb, Fred, Ernie. Billy Cox, and I could go on and on. Jesus, I'm saying to you is that every once in a while I have to stop and remember we were just young guys in the church. If you would have just taken a photo there at uh, uh, over at uh, Veterans Boulevard, 
I was thinking, you know, the most radical man that I ever met is here tonight. His name's Eric Struts. You know, you want Eric, Eric, you know, he, he looks like an intellectual, but he's actually a radical. Thank God the communists didn't reach him first. You know, Eric was a, was a, a professor. He was doing something at the U of A, and he'd come over to Tucson High. I was a student at Tucson High, and he would go and outreach with me at Tucson High, and then we would go over to the university campus. Uh, he's a radical, and I, and I thought, you know, you know, we were just guys in the church. We were part of something. We were a litter. We were part of a group. It was a miracle of God's grace of what he's done. You know, we had a, our leaders dinner. We do a leaders thing in San Antonio every May, and I actually shared some of these thoughts in the dinner there. But this was on my mind, and I'm looking at these men. Roman testified tonight, and I'm looking at Roman Willis, Rolanda, Corey, all the pastors that are there that have become very powerful ministries in their own right. And I was sitting there, and I was thinking, I remember when these guys were single disciples. I remember these guys as young men, as young converts. And here they are now. I'm telling you, beloved, that's a rare thing. Today, people don't even relate to that concept anymore. Is it possible that a group of young men can be saved, serve God within a local church, and 40 years down the road, they could still be laboring together in the same place doing the same thing? I remember a pastor sharing this story. He was saying that he, had a, he was uh, uh, not right with his pastor. He had a bad attitude. He had a funky attitude with his headship. Work with me. Some of you have no idea of that concept. And uh, so finally, one day, they were going to have a meeting. They were going to deal with it. And uh, he said in his own words that they were going back and forth. And they were, you know, he's defending his, his attitude and his reasons and all that. And I'll never forget, he said that as he was doing that, he said, God whispered in his ear about his pastor. He said, you know, you're messing with my man. And he shut up. And he made that comment himself because, beloved, there has to be more than this idea that our relationships are all about what you can do for me and I can do for you. Be more about, you know, well, you know, I, and I have no doubt with 1,500 people here, there's some people, you have an attitude with your pastor tonight and your mind. I'm not disloyal. It's just him. I want to tell you tonight, God brings the people that are in our lives. They're a divine appointment. And all these men did is say, Jesus, I will follow you. And somehow in following him, they ended up in a room together. And he began to deal with them. I want to talk to you then about being empowered for fellowship, the virtue of loyalty. He says to these men, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus gives us the capacity to love his people. See, our testimony our testimony here in Tucson is that after all these years, here we are. After all these years, after all the things that have happened, all the ups and downs, here we are tonight. And I want to tell you, this has gone missing in many Christians. If you're a visitor and you come along here, and you're trying to understand this, simply understand this. At one point, we were all just a little church on the south side of Tucson. And Pastor Warner would preach to us and say, we're going to win the world, and we believe what he said. Uh, and then one of our friends uh, would get sent out, and we would empty our bank accounts to just help him. And then as they did that for us, and this is just reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. That this is a miracle. It is a miracle that uh, we're still here. 
I meet so many Christians that, oh, I attended here and then I went over here and then the Lord led me over there and I went to this church for a little while and I, I was in this ministry for... That's not our testimony. You know what our testimony is? This is the same pastor, same church, same people. Uh, everything's still the same here. You know the little ditty that goes to dwell above with saints we love, that will be grace and glory. To dwell below with saints we know, that's another story. Thanks again for listening to the free version of the VBPH Sermon Podcast, where we post sermons on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. We also have a premium version of this podcast, which posts sermons and interviews every single day of the week. So why would you want to subscribe? I'm glad you asked. I have five reasons for you. Number one, on the premium version, we post full versions of Testimony Tuesday, Pastor Campbell Thursday, and Study Day Saturday. If you'd like to hear those episodes, then subscribe now. Reason number two, uninterrupted listening. We remove all ads and all extraneous content from our premium feed. Reason number three, premium episodes always release six hours earlier than the free version. If you're an early bird, it's a great reason to subscribe. Number four, our subscribers will gain access to our sermon chat group on WhatsApp, where we interact directly with listeners around the globe. If you'd like to chat with other premium subscribers, subscribe today. And finally, every dollar we raise goes to world evangelism. This is the best reason to subscribe because you are helping us launch churches all around the world. We don't put one dime in our pockets. Everything that we raise from this podcast will go directly to Thursday night of Chandler Conference. So please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks. I was curious, you know, what is the average length of time that somebody stays in a church? And so, you know, I read uh, George Barna, you know, he talks about this and it's kind of murky. I don't want to lose you in the weeds. But one thing that was interesting to me is he says that uh, 25% of a congregation will remain in that congregation over 25 years and likely never leave. And so they asked these people that have stayed in the church for than 25 years, uh, what would make you leave? Uh, and they asked them if the church moved, uh, you know, uh, 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 into a new location, would you? No, I'd stay in that church even if they moved. What if they got a new pastor? They said, no, I'd stay. They said, the only reason we would consider leaving our church is if they change what they believe. 25%. Somehow have this understanding that I'm preaching on, this this sense that God has put me here. These are my peeps. Uh, These are the people I'm going to serve God with. Uh, There's a quality of loyalty. You know, you heard the illustration every pastor probably has used with his congregation. They say I'm not a a bird lover, but they say that a bird, when it builds its first nest, uh, will become very, very committed and close to that nest. But if for whatever reason they have to leave that nest, they will build a second nest, uh, but they won't remain as close to the second nest. And then they will eventually move on to the third and the fourth, and every time they move away from that original nest, uh, they lose a sense of identity with the nest. I've just described a lot of Christians tonight. That this is what happens to them. The proverb puts it this way. Um, It says, as a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. 
I'm talking to Christians tonight who don't trust anybody. You can't have a meaningful conversation without having a hidden microphone, turning your phone on. You go talk to your pastor and you've got to, because you don't trust anybody. Hidden cameras. And what we're looking at in the church is the breakdown of one of the most admired qualities of the Bible, loyalty. What a terrible thing to be in this Bible conference and you don't trust anybody. What a terrible thing to be sitting here in your mother church and you feel like an outsider. I want to go on record and say tonight, if there's any blessing in my life, it's because of this congregation. I want to tell you tonight, it's because of uh, those puppies up there. If it wasn't for them, it wasn't for these guys. And it wasn't just the time we spent here in the local church. All the many years of interaction. These guys get up here and preach at me. We challenge each other. Sometimes we sharpen each other. But I want to tell you that, you know, I read a beautiful story the other day. I just finished reading Lute Olson's uh, biography or autobiography. And, I'm, you know, I, I was reading, but I read this interesting story about Steve Kerr. I got to go on record. I'm not the biggest Steve Kerr fan right now. But, but, uh, but this is, you might already know this being from Tucson. So Steve Kerr is a really, really good high school basketball player. But the only school that was interested in him was Gonzaga. They're the only ones that no, no school was interested in him. So Lute Olson says that he had gone to California to go watch this uh, other uh, uh, McDonald's All-American play and, and some sort of a tournament in Southern California. And, and he's there and he's watching this, but he noticed this scrappy uh, little uh, blonde guy uh, who, who just seems to be working really hard. And, and he just gets impressed by him. And so he begins to inquire and finds out, you know, that he has just finished high school. His mom and dad were uh, uh, professors at UCLA, you know, and, uh, and so he, he was interested. And so he comes back home and, and he's kind of like, do I, should I, should I not? He has only one more scholarship left. Um, and something in him saying, you ought, you ought to inquire about this kid. So he knows his high school coach. He calls the coach on the phone and says, listen, I tell you what, I'm going to go back to Southern California for something. If you will arrange a game and get some of the, uh, the kids from the high school team, if you know some college talent in the area, you, will you get a game together? I'm going to stop by. I just want to see Kerr one more time and see. I might consider bringing him. So he, he goes to the game, and, and Steve Kerr just tears it up. I mean, he's hitting shots. He's getting rebounds. He's doing, I mean, he's like, this guy's incredible. Lute Olson says, that's it. He offers Steve Kerr a, 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 a scholarship. He comes to the U of A. The rest is history. Years later, he finds out that what happened that night uh, is everybody knew Lute Olson was coming to help out their friend Steve Kerr. So they made him look good. They gave him open shots. Oh, look, he got another rebound. Oh, look, what a move. Oh, Steve stole the ball. And I thought, you know what? I got to say, I've been Steve Kerr by this congregation right here. These people can make you look good. That when you and I have this wonderful quality, I hope uh, that people don't think that Bible conference is a, a beauty pageant where, you know, guys come up here to strut their stuff and show you uh, how powerful that, who are you kidding here? We were just pups in the church uh, and we just labored together. God said, I'm going to put you in a litter. 
I'm going to save you in a group. I'm going to drop you with a group of young men, and together you're going to do something for God. There's nothing like loyalty. Here's a quote from Martin Luther. I'm thinking a lot about Martin Luther because Raquel is a month away from baby, uh, baby boy number three, and his name is going to be Luther. He said these words. He said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. God help me. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Amen. That's called loyalty to God who stood before the power of Europe and said, you know what, I'm a loyal man. That quality of loyalty must extend to our brothers. If God could put us in a place and surround us with like-minded men and say, we're, we're going to, we're loyal. I had a man tell me an interesting story. It's sad. This guy's a good guy, man. He's a good guy. And he said, you know, he said that I, uh, as the years rolled by in ministry, he was pastoring in a certain area, and there were some other men that were from his mother church. And he said they began to cop an attitude with the pastor. And he would hang out with them. They were his friends, and first little dives, little digs, and pretty soon they began. To, and, and, and he says, and the next thing you know, I don't know how it happened. I began to join with these rebels against my pastor. And then he just broke down weeping. And he said, I can't believe I rebelled against my pastor. I would have never, ever thought that I would ever be there. God's helped this man. He's doing great today. You got to hold on to your loyalty, man. You have to hold on to this quality. William Manchester put it this way. He, you know, William Manchester was a... Um, Marine in World War II, he jumped from island to island fighting. And he wrote a great book called Goodbye Darkness. And he said some words that it's interesting, I find now in other books. He said, these men on the line were my family, my home. They were closer to me than I can say, closer than any friends had been or ever would be. They had never let me down and I couldn't do it to them. I had to be with them rather than let them die and me live with the knowledge that I might have saved them. Men, I now know, do not die for flag or country or any other abstraction. They fight for one another. Any man in combat who lacks comrades who will die for him or for whom he is willing to die is not a man at all. He's truly damned. What a wonderful thing to be saved in a litter. What a wonderful thing to be saved in this context. These men sitting around this table. We heard this morning about Barzillai. His name means iron will, and he's the man who stood loyal with David when most of the population had turned on David and came to his aid. And I think it was Mike Webb that said this morning that when David wanted him to return with him to the palace, he was so grateful for his loyalty. And Barzillai I said, no, no, no. He says, send Shimim, let him cross over with my Lord, the king, and do for him that what seems good to you. And I want you to think about a loyal man because a loyal man says, not only am I going to be loyal, but I'm going to pass my loyalties on to my sons. I want my sons to share the same loyalty that I have. I want them to have that. 
I'm personally gratified that the men from San Antonio love Pastor Mitchell and they love Pastor Warner. That these men are comfortable around them. They have relationships. I don't hide my disciples from my, my pastor. I don't keep them away because you're afraid that they might like them. I want them to love them, and I want them to say, that's who I want to be like. If, they can, if they're like Pastor Mitchell and Pastor Warren, we're doing pretty good. Amen. He understood. There's something about his loyalty that understood I have to pass this on to another generation. You know, last week, my, my daughter's pregnant, and so my son Marcus brought Raquel and my two grandsons, Hamilton and Hudson, to Tucson. You know, Yolanda and I are not here. We're actually at boot camp, but they came here because they have a relationship that is through us to the, all the family that is here, right? My wife's mother, the aunts, the uncles, and they brought them here. My two-and-a-half-year-old grandson, uh, Hudson uh, saw my brother Fred and followed him around all week calling him Tata. <laughs> Their relationship is that we want to pass this on. We want you to know them. You know, the Bible says in 2 Samuel 10 that Joab knew it was going to be a rough battle. He said to his brother, if the Syrians are too strong for me, you help me, but if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. That's what we're all about tonight. That's our ministry. That every one of us say, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you when you're young and when you're struggling. I'm listening to these reports. Pastor Stevens talking about Edward Safa. And I thought about when Ray and Larry Beauregard and I went to Sierra Leone when Edward's a disciple, and then a year later with Pastor Scribner and and to think about all that God has done, this is how it rolls. I'm going to help you. You're going to help me. None of us are going to do this on our own, church. This is something only God has done. We need a fellowship, finally, that endures, a love that lasts. John 13, 1 says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. And I say to you tonight that Jesus is into long-term relationships. He loved them to the very end. Their testimony was their longevity. He said, they will know you're my disciples by your love. Now, I know that that verse is taken and used in these wide brushes and all that. Uh, uh, listen, he's talking about those. He's speaking right then to 11 men. He's saying to 11 men that he put together and says, discipleship is that you guys stay loving one another. Discipleship is that, that that's discipleship. I know I sat down with a man who was going to walk away after 25 years. And I said to him, what, do you think you're just going to go find some fellowship like this? You're going to go find some church, you know. Now they're going to call you brother, sister, hermana, hermano. They're going to give you a hug, and they're going to be nice to you for about two weeks. You were born in this. God brought you here. Longevity. What a remarkable testimony here in Tucson, Arizona, that we're standing here today, decade after decade after decade. I'm going to tell you tonight, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to 
you're going to have to endure something, a fellowship that endures. See, we're not here because we got lucky. How many here have been married maybe? You know, uh, I, you know we, Yolanda and I, uh, we, I remember when our 25th years ago, we went uh, to Hawaii and we went, uh, you know, and people would say, what are you doing here? And we would tell them, and they're like shocked to see somebody married 25 years. And you know what they always say? They always say, you're, you're so lucky. I mean, no, luck had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Longevity means that you're willing to endure some things. And I want to tell you, beloved, we're, this is not a love fest tonight. I'm telling you that you and I are here because we understand we heard these words. They were spoken into our spirit. This is where I want you. That is your headship. These are your brothers. If we're going to do anything, we're going to do it together. Think about what they had to endure. They had to endure betrayal. This entire text begins with the word when Jesus, Judas had gone out. Jesus spoke about the intimacy of love among these men after Judas left. I want to tell you tonight, the reality of being committed is you're going to have to watch the uncommitted walk away. You're going to have to realize that people leave. You get a picture uh, from the old days, that's fine, but not everybody's there. Over the many years, people have left, pastors have left, men that have stood on this platform and preached in our, they're not here. I understand that. They always leave. That doesn't change a thing. You love one another. You don't become distant and cynical and skeptical and marginalized. You and I have to endure betrayal. Not only that, a few hours later, they had to endure the cross. You know, remember, church, that that mob was bloodthirsty and they were looking for his disciples. Peter had to go and lie because the mob was looking for them. And we know that when resurrection happened, that these men were hiding. That they, these men had fallen out of favor. They had, they, they had gone through some things, but yet one of the things that stands out is, you know, yeah, these men were fearful and everything else, but you know what else they were? They stayed together. They hung in there even during those times of fear when profound disappointment and no doubt confusion and all the things that were going on that didn't make sense. These men hung in there and they held together. You know what else they endured? They endured the call. Because the great news is that every single one of these men went on to become powerful men of God. Every one of these men stood up and said, I'm going to do the will of God. I'm going to be faithful. And these young men that were at one point just young men stayed true to the call of God until the day that Jesus called them home. Andrew died in Bulgaria. Nathaniel died in Turkey. Jude went to Persia. Matthew preached the gospel in Ethiopia and was killed for questioning the morals of the king. Peter was martyred upside down by, in Rome by Nero. Philip killed to Egypt. Simon was martyred by crucifixion in Britain. And Thomas, we all know, was thrust through by a spear outside of Sinai, India. Young men sitting around a table. Young men just simply brought together. And I read these words and I think to myself, I, don't, I, never, I didn't choose this. I didn't think about it. I never even understood when at the age of 16, I bowed my knee to Jesus Christ. We'd go out to Rodeo Park and play basketball or stand on a street corner in Stone and Congress or outside the U of A football stadium. Go through courtship 
that those teenage boys that I was playing with, 40 years later, we would be preaching the gospel still together, same pastor, same church. And I want to tell you, thank God for what he's done, but how about we stick it out until the very end? Let's finish. Let's finish. Last thing we need to do is get ripped off at the end. I'm about to finish in a couple of months my third lap around the track. We got to finish this thing. And say, God, you did this. You did this. And if you did this, that guy, that brother, that sister, he put them in our lives. Put up that picture and I finish with this. This is uh, uh, a man uh, named Sullivan Balu. Some of you know this, may have used it in a sermon. It's considered one of the most famous letters from the Civil War. He was 24 years old. That brother looks old for 24. (laughs) He was a lawyer in Boston, newly married. The Civil War broke out, and this man volunteered and was now in the field, and it was days before the battle at Bull Run, and he has this idea that he's probably not going to make it out, so he writes this letter to his wife, and it's a very powerful letter, but I want you to capture tonight in this man his loyalty. As he says these words, he writes to his wife, her name is Sarah, he says, I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause which I'm engaged in, my courage does not halt or falter. I know how American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government, and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government. And to pay that debt, Sarah, my love for you is deathless, seems to me It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. Yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly with those chains to the battlefield. Memory of all the blissful moments I've enjoyed with you come crowding over me. And I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I've enjoyed them for so long. And how hard it is for me to give them up and to burn to ashes the hopes in future years when, God willing, we might still have lived in love together and see our boys grown up to honorable manhood around us. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, but we shall meet again. We must finish tonight. Thank God for where we are, but we must finish, and we must finish together. Thank you so much for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless. God bless.